you have a copy of the Bible, let me encourage you to take it out and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Well, this past summer, I had the amazing privilege of performing my daughter's wedding ceremony. Uh, Without a doubt, it was one of the top five best days of my entire life. It just, everything about it was fantastic. And I want to let you in on a little bit of what was in my mind and on my heart that day. Because as the wedding officiant, I had the responsibility to preach a 15-minute sermon that day. And it was a 15-minute sermon that took me about 10 months to write. Because you, you see, I knew I had one shot. I had one opportunity to say to Becca and Drew in a personal and meaningful way those things that I believed were most important. And so my sermon outline for that day looked like this. Live your lives for the glory of God. Look more like Jesus every single day and leverage your marriage for the sake of the gospel. And then under that third point, there are four specific things that I wanted to say. Always stay connected to a local church. Use your home as a place for ministry. Never stop pursuing avenues to make disciples and faithfully steward your resources with eternity in mind. Seems like kind of an odd point for a wedding sermon. But when I got to that fourth item under point number three, this is what I said to my daughter and her new husband that day, verbatim. I said, here's the deal. God may see fit to provide you with little. He may see fit to bless you with much. Whether it's little or much or somewhere in between, it all belongs to him. Don't ever forget that. Start from day one in your marriage, investing in things that matter. Don't get caught up in the pursuit of stuff. Don't get sucked into keeping up with the Joneses. But be wise, be generous, and steward your resources with eternity in mind. You see, not as a pastor, but as a dad, I have a deep, deep desire for my children and their spouses, their families one day, their homes and their resources to count for the kingdom and bring great glory to God. And so on that day, one of the talking points that made the dentist, you got one shot at it list, was to help them understand and know that from day one in their marriage, there is much joy to be found in biblical, God-centered generosity. A few years ago, LifeWay Research conducted an internal study on 500 of the largest Southern Baptist churches. And one of the resounding takeaways of that study was the high volume of church leaders that showed concern for what they termed an aging donor base. 
meaning that their current base of givers was getting older and smaller. And the issue was being compounded by a lack of replacement younger givers in the ranks. And the report said this, the realities of charitable giving are currently well disguised. Here are the facts. Charitable giving has hit historic highs in our country over the past few years, and it is projected to continue to grow for the next couple of years. However, the number of donors to charitable causes has been on a consistent decline of 15% for the past 15 years. So we actually have fewer people giving more dollars. The study went on to say that a local church could uh, actually be experiencing giving that has, has leveled off or is slightly increasing every year, but be completely unaware that fewer people may actually be contributing to the result. And the problem becomes multiplied when you consider how many new young givers it takes to replace one loyal mature giver. The study also said a final issue that can create some fear is the transfer of wealth that the current mature donor base holds. It is reported that over $30 trillion will be transferred from one generation to the next over the next 20 years. Will these dollars continue to be given by the next generation or not? That is a really big question. I don't know about you, but I'm not naturally generous. Uh, I'm just not. My natural sinful inclination when I think about money is to think about me. And my guess is that there is some shade of that that most of us, if not all of us, can relate to today. I think. I think most of us wish we were more generous. We're just not exactly sure how to get there. And so as we head into the holidays and as we head into the giving season that falls here at the end of the year, I want to take some time this morning and help us think biblically and practically about the subject of generosity. And so let's read from God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints, and not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this as a command, rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genu genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, 
For your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So the Apostle Paul is writing here to a church. And in his writing, he is exhorting them to give generously to an offering that was being collected for the church in Jerusalem. But how he goes about it is is really kind of interesting because he holds up as an example of generosity the poverty-stricken church in nearby Macedonia. Now look there in verse 7, we see that Paul offers an evaluation, if you will, of some of the vital areas of this church's spiritual life. He speaks of their faith and their speech and their knowledge, their diligence, their love, and he gives them a great report card, gives them straight A's, in fact, excellent. He says, you're knocking it out of the park in these areas, but then he adds, excel also Make sure you also knock it out of the park in this act of grace. And he's talking about the grace of giving. At the root of what he's getting at is their generosity. The overflowing goodness of God expressed through giving. Now I want you to notice in verse 8 he says, I am not saying this as a command. But rather, in so many words, he says, I want us to do an assessment. I want us to take a test of your generosity by comparing it to or looking at it alongside the generosity of others. And then look ahead at verse 10. Paul says, and in this matter, meaning the matter of generosity, I am giving advice because it is profitable for you. So he says, I'm not saying it as a command, I'm actually giving you some advice. Because you see, generosity is not a matter of legislation. It's not a forced issue, it's not simply a payroll deduction. But it's a matter of individual conscience, or or maybe more appropriately stated, it's a matter of the heart. If we give grudgingly, then our mindset is, I've got to. If we give dutifully, then our mindset is essentially, I'm going to. But if we give joyfully, then our mindset is, I get to. I've got to, I'm going to, or I get to. And so as we consider what generosity looks like in the church, I think we see from this passage at least five characteristics in the Macedonian church that Paul is holding up as the standard. So let's take a moment and look at these. Number one, the church gave themselves first to the Lord. They gave themselves first to the Lord. We see it stated clearly there in verse 5. And what that means is their money was simply an expression. It was only one expression of their total and complete devotion to God. Another way to say it is this. They put themselves in the offering basket first, and then their money followed matter-of-factly. You see, when a person understands that becoming a Christian is a giving of their entire life to the Lord, 
well, then a sermon like this one makes sense. But if you don't have that understanding or you haven't gotten to that place in your relationship with Jesus, then at a minimum, it's hard for you to connect the dots between your finances and your faith. Martin Luther is reported to have said that a believer goes through three conversions, the head, the heart, and the wallet. Because the reality is our our money is often the last area of our life that is submitted to Christ. While the Crusades were being fought during the 12th century, the Crusaders hired mercenaries to do their fighting for them. And because it was a religious war, the mercenaries were baptized before going into battle. And it's said that as they were being baptized, the soldiers would take out their swords and they would hold them up out of the water to symbolize that Jesus Christ was not in control of their swords. In other words, they had the freedom to use their swords however they saw fit. Well, perhaps not as obvious or deliberate, I'm afraid that some of us today may handle our money and possessions in a similar fashion. And we, we hold our, our wallet or our debit card out of the water in effect saying, God, you can be Lord of every area of my life except this one, which I am perfectly capable of handling on my own. Friends, we will never get out of the starting block in our generosity until this issue is settled. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Well, secondly, we see that the church gave in response to the grace of God. They gave in response to the grace of God. Verse 1 says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. Any consideration that you and I have of, of becoming generous people has to begin with an understanding of God's generosity toward us, right? Think of the words of James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus was given on our behalf. And then in verse 9 of our passage here today, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Just Just for a moment, look at the depth of that verse. Paul Paul describes how Jesus descended from lofty riches down into utter poverty as an act of grace toward you and toward me. See, there, there is profound theology packed into those few words. And they're placed right here in the Bible. 
in this spot so that you and I can see that a life of generosity is directly connected to the gospel, which was the perfect display of grace and generosity. On any attempt that we make to encourage ourselves or anyone else for that matter to be generous toward the work of the gospel with any kind of thinking that doesn't begin with God's grace is a huge miss. Listen, the the starting point is not the needs of the world. It's not the church budget. The, The starting point is the grace of God. Write this in the, in the margin. Their grace stirs up gratitude, and gratitude stimulates generosity. Grace, gratitude, generosity. See, our generosity ought to be a, a reflex response to the grace of God in our lives. If grace is the action, giving is the reaction. I love how Randy Alcorn says it in his great little book, The Treasure Principle. He says, as thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. When God's grace touches you, you can't help but respond with generous giving. Church, the more we become aware of God's grace in our lives, the more we will respond with a thankfulness which produces an overflowing joy because God is a giving God. In fact, if you read the Bible through the, through the lens of generosity, you will be amazed by how richly generous God is toward you. His giving nature is all over the pages of Scripture. One of the things that's true about the Blythe family is that we love Mexican food. Uh, I grew up in El Paso, Texas. Kathy grew up in, in San Antonio. And so we both ate a lot of it growing up. And to no one's surprise, both of our kids love Mexican food. In fact, if someone in the family says, well, we had Mexican food for lunch, so what do y'all want for dinner? It's not unusual for someone else to say, how about Mexican food? It just it goes with being a blithe. You say, well, what's the point of that? The point is, if we are God's children and we are going to take on the family likeness then we have to understand that one of the characteristics of God's children is generosity. It's part of bearing the family name. But then look in verse 2, the passage tells us that their generosity wasn't hindered by affliction or poverty. You see, that's interesting. It's interesting because Paul didn't pick As the standard setter, setter, as his example, he didn't pick the church from the wealthy side of town. He he didn't say, see that church over there that has it all together, all the nice buildings, all the programs, be more like them. 
No, he says in verse 2, during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. How does that happen? It happens because grace leads to gratitude and gratitude leads to giving. Brooke Hills, when when joy begins to spill over in a church who has committed themselves first and fully to the Lord and also understands that they are responding to the marvelous grace of God, you know what happens? That opens the floodgates of generosity. And when the church finds that kind of joy in their giving, God is greatly glorified. Well, next we see the church gave according to and beyond their ability. According to and beyond their ability. Now, there are a couple of things to link together in this passage here. First of all, uh, again, Paul's punchline is verse 7, where he says, excel also in this act of grace. That's what he's after. But then back up in verse 3, He says that the church gave according to their ability and even beyond their ability. Well, first of all, how are you ever going to excel at anything? You've got to get better at it, right? It doesn't matter if it's your job, if it's a sport, if it's music. If you want to excel, then you're going to have to develop and grow. And in most cases, it's not going to come without some sweat and sacrifice along the way. But he says there that they gave beyond their ability. What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, is that really wise? I mean, after all, we would never advise someone to go out and buy a a car that they can't afford. So what does it mean to give beyond your ability? Well, I don't believe that it's a a green light to go out and do something that's financially irresponsible, nor is it a suggestion to be foolish with our money. Here's my best shot at it, when also reconciling it with what the Bible has to say in other places about wise stewardship. I think that, that what Paul is after is the notion that you and I ought to push or stretch ourselves in our giving, hang on, maybe even when the figures don't all add up. I think it means that we remain committed to generosity even if Quicken or Mint or our financial advisor says maybe we shouldn't. I wouldn't call myself a runner, although over the years I have run a few shorter races. My longest about 10 years ago was a 10K, 10 kilometers, and I ran it in, of all places, Boulder, Colorado, alongside 50,000 other people. And so even though it wasn't that long of a race, maybe I get points for the altitude, right, running it in the freezing cold. But my goals for that race were this. I wanted to finish. I didn't want to be last, like number (laughs) 50,000. 
And, and I wanted to run it in under an hour. And I'm happy to report that I accomplished all three. But here's the deal. I didn't just wake up one day able to go out and run 6.2 miles without stopping. The truth of the matter is, when I made the decision that I wanted to do this, I could hardly run around the block, much less 6.2 miles. And so as I began to get ready and as I began to train over a few months, I had to push myself to run distances I had never run before. And so when I got to where I could run two miles without stopping, I had to push myself to make it three miles. I didn't know if I could make it three miles, and it was hard. And then at some point, I had to make myself run four and eventually reach for five. Because I, I wasn't ever going to, to begin running beyond my ability if I remain satisfied with jogging 20 minutes a day. And I think it can work much the same way with our generosity. The, the principle Paul is getting at here is that at some point in our maturity as a believer, we, we push beyond what we think we're capable of, and that's hard for most of us to do. I think it's one of the reasons that statistics indicate that nationwide, Christians give on average about 2.5% of their income to their church, which happens to be down from what it was during the Great Depression. It was 3.3% in that era. That's that's crazy to think that the Depression-era giving percentage was higher than it is now. But people relied on the generosity of others to make ends meet. And because the struggle was, was widely shared, folks understood the value of community. And they were willing to forego luxuries to ensure that they could meet each other's needs. If you and I always give within the range of our comfort zone, we've never really understood biblical giving. And it really doesn't matter the amount. If you give $100 a month or $1,000 a month or $10,000 a month, if you and I get to the end of that month... And we have all the discretionary dollars that we need and then some. And there's not any squeeze that we feel or sacrifice we've made. Then we're missing out on one of the growth agents for this vital part of our spiritual life. See, excelling in our giving means striving to be as generous as we can possibly be. That's why Jesus pointed to the widow and he said she's to be commended far more than these rich guys over here. She gave all she had and those guys merely cashed out a few shares of their apple stock. She gave, to borrow from our passage here, beyond her ability. And her only hope was that the God who saw her would be faithful to provide for her needs. And one of the things that Kathy and I have found to be true uh, over the years 
is that our giving, even when we stretched, has never been followed by regret. Now, it's always been followed by God's faithfulness. And several times it has been followed by God providing in unexpected ways. There have been many months in our marriage that it shouldn't have all added up. But we made it. Has it been hard at times? Sure it has. Have I ever wrestled internally with being generous or or tried to rationalize my way out of giving? Certainly. But never has true generosity ever been followed by regret. They gave according to and beyond their ability. A fourth characteristic that we see in this church is they were a church that gave without prodding. Look at verse 3. It says, they gave of their own accord. Another way to say it is that they gave entirely on their own. No reminders, no prompting, no arm twisting, but willfully. And I have to confess to you that I, I struggled with writing this message. Because I wanted to be really, really careful not to cross a line of sounding like I'm up here telling you what to do. I did desire to open up and teach God's word, which tells all of us what to do. But we're all in this together. The next chapter over, chapter 9 and verse 7, Paul says this, each person should do as he has decided in his own heart. Not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. The reality is, I don't know about your heart. I have a hard enough time trying to figure out my own heart. And so here's a little exercise that I want us to do, and it's this. If you had to pick the emoji that most closely matches your heart when it comes to this issue of generosity and giving, which one would it be? Let me offer some possibilities, all right? For some of you, This might be your heart. You're just sour about the whole subject. You say, I'm irritated, Dennis, because it's really none of your business. I knew we should have just had church at home today. Gotten started with the holidays a little bit early. It just makes me mad. Or there's this heart. Really? We're really going to talk about this. Okay, whatever. Honey, where are we going to lunch? Or there's this heart. It's all good. 
I got me a compassion child on the fridge. I drop a few bucks in the basket because you know what I say, a dollar a day keeps the pastor away. There's this heart. Hmm. Giving. That's a good question. And maybe I should think about that. There's this heart. It's all about the deduction. <laughs> Making my numbers work. I've got my giving spreadsheet like I like it. I got to talk to my finance man at the end of the year so I can find out what I need to give, not end up in the wrong tax bracket. Then there's this heart. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I give. Uh, have given. S some. To... A charity, okay, a charity. I don't know, I added a couple of dollars to my bill at Publix, but I give. There's probably some of these, several of these perhaps. You know, I pretty regularly give 10% of my net income to the church. I gave a little something to the Reach and Roots I plan to give to the global thing, and I even sent a check to a student for their mission trip. Now, to be fair, there are some good things there, okay? But I wonder, are any of you here on this topic? Because let me suggest to you that this might be more of a biblical target for our hearts on this issue than we realize. See, the word that's used in the original language for the word cheerful, cheerful giver, is the same word from which we get our English word hilarious. Now, it's not an apples-to-apples -apples correlation on the meaning, but it does hint at the kind of joy that's to be found in our generosity. This may be a bit of a stretch, but... Can you imagine a culture of generosity in a church where people would say about these baskets that we collect at the end of the service, that was so awesome. Let's pass them around again. It's hard to have joy when it feels like generosity is being pulled out of you, isn't it? Kathy and I have been married for 27 years, plus a few months. I did the math the other day at, at 24 pay periods a year. By God's grace, we've been able to give to gospel work now for over 650 pay periods. And it's a check that we know we're going to write or now an online payment that we know we're going to make two times every month. And I already know the amount. It's been predetermined. Because you see, we've learned that there's value in planning our giving. 
makes a difference in my heart. Because here's what I know about myself. If I leave my generosity to primarily be spontaneous, then I'll tend to give out of my leftovers. And if I wait to get into the habit of, of seeing if there's anything left, then I'm in trouble. So connected to this same offering that Paul is talking about in our passage, he says about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says this, Now about this collection for the saints, on the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. Regular, planned, first fruits giving not only reinforces generosity, but it eliminates the need to be prodded. Let me say that again. Regular, planned, first fruits giving not only reinforces our generosity, but it eliminates the need to be prodded. Well, briefly, a final characteristic that we see in Paul's example is that this was a church that pleaded for an opportunity to give. Think just for a moment about verse 2 again. How do, how do trial, affliction, joy, poverty, and generosity all show up in one verse? They show up in one verse because it's a group of believers that refuse to let the hard circumstances of life squash their joy. Again, it's the kind of work that the grace of God does. But then in verse 4, it's amazing. It says, they begged us. They begged not to be given to, but for the opportunity to give. A group of Christians who by all estimations didn't have two nickels to rub together said, please don't leave us out of this. We want in on it too. It was a church that was eager and zealous to be generous. Oh God, make me that kind of a giver. So Brookhills, four things to take away. First of all, Let's assess our generosity. Can, can we do that as a faith family? Would you be willing to, to do some self-evaluation and assessment? It's, it's something I would encourage every single one of us to do. You simply take the, the rubric that Paul gives the Corinthians and, and take those five points that are above that we just looked at and, and turn them into questions. And it might sound like this. First of all, am I completely surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Have I given myself first and fully to the Lord? Does he have all of me, including my finances? Secondly, am I giving in response to God's grace? Is this what motivates my generosity? Is it informing what and when and where and how I give? Next, am I pushing myself in my giving? Am I playing it safe? Or, or am I taking some steps out of my comfort zone? When was the last time I added a mile to my giving? Next, am I giving without being prompted? 
Or am I always having to be nudged? Is my giving planned? Or am I just the spontaneous giver? And then last, am I eagerly seeking opportunities to give? Or am I more distracted by the reasons that I think I can? Let's assess our generosity. And then next, let's take a step. Let's take a step, Brook Hills, in our generosity. I don't know what that looks like for you. For someone here today, your step may be finally submitting your life wholly and completely to Christ. That may be the step for you. And if that's it, praise God. Maybe for some it means redirecting some treasure so that your heart will follow. You say, what does that mean? Well, in Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, changing the flow of our money will change the attention and love of our hearts. I love going to the mountains. And when I spend money going there, guess what? I want to go more and more. The things we spend our money on become the true desires of our heart. We probably all have an area like this. And we get this verse backwards. We want it to read, where my heart is, is where I'll put my treasure. And so we sit around waiting for our heart to change. And what I've learned is this, make a change in where the treasure is going, and then watch what God does with your heart. On this idea of taking a step, here is a a true statement, maybe with some extremely unique exceptions. If my income grows, so should my generosity. If my income grows, so should my generosity. But here's another true statement that goes with it. If my income doesn't grow, my generosity still can. There's a step forward for every single one of us. Third, Brook Hills, let's teach the next generation to be generous. Let's do this in our homes. Let's do this in our ministries as a church. Let's teach our children and our grandchildren what it means to be a steward, not an owner of that $30 trillion dollars. Let's teach our children where to begin in this whole area. Personally, I think the starting point for biblical generosity is a tithe, 10% of my income. You say, Dennis, wasn't that the old covenant? Aren't we living under the new covenant? Are we really commanded to tithe in the New Testament? Here's what I've learned. I've learned that Jesus always raised the spiritual bar. He never lowered it. Another thing that I've learned is this. My attitude toward giving shouldn't be motivated by a percentage. It should be motivated by my love for God. I love the, what I would call mic drop statement that Kevin DeYoung, pastor and author, said about this very thing. 
He said, whether the Old Testament requirement is a binding prescription or not, I find it hard to imagine that Western Christians who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ and enjoy great prosperity would want to give less than was required of the poorest Israelite. And I think Randy Alcorn gets it right when he says this, tithing isn't the ceiling of giving, it's the floor. It's not the finish line of giving, it's just the starting blocks. Tithes can be training wheels to launch us into the mindset, skills, and habits of grace giving. So Brooke Hills, let's teach our children how to get started. Let's teach our children to value the local church. Our family gives primarily to the local church. It's not all that we give, but it's always been the first and primary way that we give to gospel work. Some might say, I like to support other ministries and causes. Is that okay? I would say most definitely. But my personal and biblical conviction is that it shouldn't replace or take away from what I give to my local church. J.D. Greer pastors one of the most mission-minded churches on the planet. Hard-pressed to find someone that wants the gospel to go to the corners of the earth more than he does. Says this, I don't believe Christians should give only to the local church, but I do believe that Christians should give first to their local church. The local church is God's plan A. It's the vehicle through which we care for the poor, feed the hungry, equip people to minister in the community, and send people out to the nations. When we give to the local church, we give to the mission of God. You see, your your local church is your spiritual home. Uh, It's the faith community that you are invested in. It's where your heart and life are are woven together in in covenant with other believers. You're doing the mission of God together. And so hopefully it's the place that Christians think about first when it comes to expressing their God-centered generosity. Well, finally, Brook Hills, by God's grace... Together, as we conclude this year and begin the next, let's desire, pursue, and experience the joy, the immeasurable joy that's found in generosity.